G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device, which still isn't funny. Anyway, we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC Podcast, and we don't ask for anything in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could just um, stay on uh, Apple Podcast or iTunes or Acast and, and leave us a review. A five-star review would be great. Um, obviously, there's other reviews available, but we'd prefer a uh, we'd prefer a five-star review. So this is the, the reincarnation if you like of the RVC podcast was originally uh, focused on the on the research that happens at the at the RVC and speaking to the researchers that are involved in in doing that um, there's been a little hiatus for the last seven years um, but we've decided to uh, to, to relight this uh, podcast fire and, and uh, get some of the researchers back um, into the studio so we can talk to them about what they've been get, getting on to do so today we're going to talk to uh, um, to Dr. Stuart Patterson. Uh, Dr. Patterson has just uh, finished his his PhD, and we'll we'll chat a, a bit to them about that. And he's also uh, recently been appointed a lecturer in wild animal health biology. So uh, um, so we'll have a listen to him, um, and we hope you enjoy. Today I'm joined with with uh, Stuart Patterson. Thank you very much, Stuart, for joining us. Stuart, you're a temporary lecturer in, in dairy medicine. Is is that correct? Yep, that's right. I finished my PhD uh, four months ago now, uh, and I've had the opportunity to, to stay on and work this year whilst I look around for other opportunities and, and what I'm going to do next year. So it's a nice opportunity to, to go back to the, the cattle work that I did before the PhD and think about cows and um, get hands on some animals f- um, instead of being in the office. Um, it's a good opportunity to get paid as well whilst I'm looking around for things, and it's it's good experience as well. So, so, so far, so good. It sounds like a good good opportunity. You look you look rather relaxed in this uh, glorious studio that we have here. So, it's so, nice. uh, so that that's good. But a little little scar from the weekend sporting activities. But anyway, let the boys play. So, um, so what what uh, made you sort of go into, or what did you what did you do after you after you left vet school? Uh, so I finished vet school in 2007, and then I had five years working in clinical practice, all UK-based, um, doing 100% farm work. Um, so I worked, worked in three different practices around the country, um, got a lot of population medicine, um, yeah. And, and what, what, was that always what you wanted to do? So when you were at vet school, did you always want to be a, a, a clinical vet working in, in practice and doing farm stuff? Yeah, well, no. There'd been a there'd been a sort of a, a sheen, scene shift during during vet school. Um, I think I'd spent a lot of I think I must have booked all my clinical placements during the summer for farm work, and I'd spent a lot of happy happy days in the sunshine in farmyards. Um, but originally, I'd wanted to do wildlife and exotics, and that's what had always interested me. Um, went to sort of a number of talks outside of vet school um, during the undergraduate course, and during that time, I'd kind of drifted away. From, from that interest in, in, um, in zoo work and wildlife and I hadn't really been entirely sure why um, at the time but by the time I got to graduation I thought actually it's, it's farm work I want to go, to go into and then I suppose um, look, looking back what I'd seen was that the aspects of farm work that I really enjoyed was the herd health, population medicine um, and that's what I hadn't seen in these extracurricular talks on the, on the zoo medicine I'd seen a lot of talks on on individual exotic pets or how to treat an individual animal in a zoo but never never the big picture never the things about how to help population wildlife populations um, and how medicine could be applied to, to those so um, that's kind of where I sort of switched and switched again I suppose really and came back to where I wanted to be from the start 
Um, and I, I came back to RVC to do the Masters in, in Veterinary Epidemiology. And the idea there was really to combine that population interest that I'd got from the cattle with the, with the wildlife that I'd, I'd wanted to do all along. And uh, it turned out it worked out quite well. So, so, so it's been what, really interesting. What was that, what was that de- decision then to do the epidemiology stuff? Was that, was that to help you um, do your job better? Was, was that the idea like with, the, with the population medicine? Uh, no, the idea was always to try and, to try and find a route into, into wildlife work. Um, and I'd, I'd done a sort of a bit of soul searching and thought about the bits that I had enjoyed about the cattle and the bits and why the wildlife thing had never had never come off and why I drifted away from it and it was a bit tactical really. Um, I decided that it, it, it was the population stuff I wanted to look at, but I wanted to apply that to wildlife. Um, so I did two things. I started the um, veterinary epidemiology masters here because um, I thought that population side would be really would be really interesting and that would be a way that my skill set I could contribute to wildlife work. Um, but I thought, rightly so, that that was very, very much going to be grounded in public health, in food safety, in farm animal stuff, uh, which fitted where I'd been recently, um, but wasn't going to address, you know, this sort of wild animal side. So at the same time, I um, enrolled concurrently in a in a conservation medicine masters part time at Edinburgh. So I did the two alongside each other. So you did two masters uh, simultaneously. Yeah, I'm not sure we're supposed to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> and are you, were you working uh, as well? Or no, no, so it was a it was a full time masters yeah. the the EP, and then I did the um, the conservation medicine as a three year part time course. So okay. I was, yeah, doing that in the evenings and alongside. Okay. But it was a nice way to ground the sort of the the, the very specific. I suppose the EP was a very specific skill, something I want. So I'd got my veterinary skills, and then I wanted to to pick up the the epidemiology and the analysis skills, whereas the conservation medicine, the wildlife side, was more of a, a scene setting, more cerebral, getting an idea of what sorts of things were going on in those fields, what were the what were the problem areas, what ways could I use the skill set that I'd got to put it into that context. So it, it grounded the skills, really. Yeah, and, and when you were making that decision about, as you said, a bit of soul searching about where where to where to go, was that was that a, a, a conscious thing that you you thought about yourself, or were you talking to people who were doing what you thought you might want to do in the future, and how did they get there? Yeah, very much that. Uh, well, well, both, but um, there were certain two or three people in particular that I went to talk to. I thought, right, you've got the job that I really fancy that that looks really cool you're going off and doing this um what is it how did you get to where you are what is it about your do- what you're doing that sounds really good um so I was really well I said I was really grateful to them one, one of them particularly destroyed me one evening uh in terms of he said oh you know come down we'll have a meeting I'll talk you through things um and it was really useful um but he did kind of rip me to to pieces that night because he said, you know, what is it What is it that you don't like about what you're doing now? And we talked about sort of individual cases um, and some, some of the, the frustrations that you often get um, when, you, when you can't work up a case properly and you don't have the diagnostics. And, and he said, well, you know, let's, let's apply that to, to, um, to a leopard in a zoo or something like that. It's still an individual animal. You're still going to be doing this exactly the same sorts of things. And at the time, I thought, oh, you know, that's this. This is where I want to go. This is the dream, and, he, and I thought, and he's absolutely right. You know, all I'm going to do is swap a cow, and I like I like cows for a, for a leopard, and I like leopards, but I'm still going to be doing the same thing in a dif- in a different setting. Um, so if, yeah, for a few days, I was a bit crushed by that because I thought you know, that's that that was the the route that I wanted to go off down, 
and uh, he's just he's just very much proved that that is that isn't going to work. But that was a sort of a good opportunity to build build up from there. And then I said, right, well, what bits do I like from what I'm doing, and, and how can I cross over? And that's that's how I kind of came to the conclusions that that I was looking at. Okay. Um, so yeah, there was a bit there was a, there was a bit of a knockdown in there. But yeah, along along the way, I was talking to to various people and and picking up um, paths that they'd gone down. And I guess the other thing from that was that this handful of people that had these the, these exciting jobs that you know thought I'll I'll have that they'd all done completely different routes, and it wasn't as if there was there was never there was never a point where I thought right if I do A B C I'll get to where they are, so that was a time to think well actually there's a bit of luck involved in some of these things, and there's definitely cases of following your interests and it leads to other things that are interesting and, and going down the route so that's when I started to think well what skill sets have I got what could I gain and where could they and where could they take me so that's why I made those decisions to to come out of practice at that time and, and follow those two masters and then um so how did the the PhD come out of come out of that that was quite a good example of talking talking to people and one interest leading to another really um, I was coming, I was probably about two-thirds of the way through my EPI course at the RVC um, and I got uh, got in touch with Julian, uh, Julian Drew, who subsequently became my, my PhD supervisor. I said, look, you, you're the guy that seems to be interested in wildlife at the college um, and you're involved in the epidemiology side. What sort of options are there? Wh- where, do, where do you think I should go? Um, and he gave me some advice, and we had a bit of a chat about diff- different routes and stuff. And the the chat very much fin- finished with, "Oh, I've got a grant in at the moment for a PhD. If I get it, uh, you might want to think about applying." And the next the next I heard from that was a month down the line, "Oh, I have got the grant. Would you like to apply?" Um, so it very much fell into my lap, in in that in that sense. Um, so I applied for that, and was fortunate enough to be given a position on that PhD. But at the time, it, I wasn't specifically looking for a PhD. It wasn't about go- necessarily going down that long-term academic route. It was, I wanted an opportunity to do some to do some research that w- could be applied in a wildlife setting that would give me some field experience and a range of contacts. So it wasn't just that it fit- fell into my lap, which fortuitously it did, but it, it ticked the boxes at the same time. So it seemed a sensible way to go. And and uh, and what was the, the the focus of your PhD? Um, well, most people think it was meerkats and tuberculosis, which it was. Um, but so behind behind that, it was looking at disease control in a wildlife population, and TB and meerkats were very much was a model system for what we wanted to look at. So we were looking at basically smarter ways to control control disease. So vaccines get used um, to control lots of diseases in human populations. Vac- vaccinations are widespread. In wildlife, it's much more difficult because we try to get hold of these animals, and f- that, that tends to be the big limiting factor is how is what proportion of population you can actually get hold of at any point. How, how can you give these, these drugs? Sometimes there's... Um, we, we, there's risks with some of these medications that we we don't we don't know about fully. So ideally, in a wildlife setting, we would want to give as few vaccines uh, as possible. So the the way we were coming at this is, well, if we if we're not going to give so many doses, who do we give them to? Which individuals? Um, 
and there's theory that certain individuals within populations may be more important in terms of disease spread. And some modelling exercises have looked at this and they've looked at networks of transmission within populations and, and definitely in these models um, there are certain individuals you can target for, for vaccination but there's very little about people actually trying that in the field. So the setup for this was to actually go and go and try that. We, we knew in a meerkat population in South Africa who we thought the most likely spreaders of disease were based on their behaviours and we had the opportunity to monitor these animals over, over a period of time and look at infection levels in different groups. So it was a perfect setup to actually try and put this into practice. That's pretty good. So, so this was obviously a collaboration with the, with the RBC and, and uh, a group in, in South Africa? So the University of Cambridge own the research site that we worked at. So it's um, Tim Cluntbrook um, is the professor in charge there, uh, working with uh, University of Zurich and Professor Marta Manser at Zurich and they've been running a behavioural ecology research site since the early 1990s up in the Northern Cape of South Africa and so their focus isn't disease at all, disease is something that kind of just gets in the way for them, um, I, th I think they forgive me saying that. Um, so they're interested in very much interactions between individuals, um, life, life history strategies in terms of how you become dominant in a group, how you pass on your genes, how you, how you make sure that you're the one that's going to breed rather than others. So they've got this fantastic data set of um, thousands of individuals now that they've, be they've monitored over that time and they have volunteers that go out, go out to these groups. Um, typically at any point in time at, at the reserve there'll be around 15 social groups of meerkats that are habituated. It um, doesn't mean that they're tame but it means that they will allow um, interaction with humans so the volunteers and typically one or two um, will, get, will go out to the group. They will spend the morning watching these individuals so all of the individuals are identifiable visually so they'll have some sort of um, dye mark on, the, on their coat, um, hair dye. L'Oreal, that's, that's, that's the one. That's the one you need. And um, so they can they they will record during that session who interacts with who, what sort of behaviours they have. So is it aggressive? Is it submissive? Um, which animals would be leading the group? Who would be following? What they spend their time doing? They weigh those individuals. Um, they're coaxed onto an electric balance with boiled egg. So after a while, you're pretty sick of the smell of boiled egg. Um, <laughs> But the byproduct of that is that we have this data set and we know which animals have shown visual signs of tuberculosis, which is um, the disease that we were studying at that time. We didn't have infection, in, uh, infection status data, so they hadn't been blood sampled continuously. So we didn't. So the the process is that an animal will become infected, and over a period of time, it will become diseased. So we will see physical signs. Um, so we don't always know who's at the earlier stages of disease until my project started. Um, but we had got this rich set of data on which animals become become diseased in the long term. So it's a good chance to, to jump on that and hijack it. What, why, um, why do they use like meerkats to look at these behaviours in, in groups? Is, is it to do with the number and, and uh, location, as in they get a, a large proportion of carnivore mammals in a... I think... Yeah, there's, there's a mixture of, of factors, really. So, I mean, the meerkats are very interesting because of their 
cooperative breeding structure. So you'll you'll find a, a group and they can vary in size. A social group can be as few as five or they can run up to 40 or 50 in, in, at good times. And yet 80% of the offspring in that in that br- group will be from the dominant pair from the dominant male and the dominant female so from a from a behavioral aspect that's that's really interesting who, who gets to be those and, and everybody else all the other adults within that group the subordinates will be supporting the dominant pair so they will help out with feeding pups they'll help out with babysitting pups with guarding duties um, and they all work together to write to raise those pups so they're very interesting from that point of view um, in a, on a more practical level, um, they're reasonably easy to habituate compared to compared to some other species, um, and the group living aspect makes it makes it very interesting. So, not only have you got groups of animals um, that that will interact within the group, but you also have the interactions between one group and the next group, so you can study those as well. Um, so they're they're very interesting from that point of view. The, f- the fact that they get TB was never part of the the idea to start with until until Julian and I wandered along. So, so, so you, uh, and so TB is just an actually occurring disease in the meerkat population, is it? That uh, and and it was just to have a look at I'd say how their interactions and TB spreads. How, how do you identify the, those those uh, meerkats that had TB? Yeah. So. In, initially, we get animals that have um, large swellings of the lymph node under, under their chin, um, and initially it wasn't known. So I mean, this, the project been running since the ni- since the nineteen nineties, and it was in the late nineties that people that some of the researchers started to notice um, these lumps. Now, I'm assuming that actually they were there in the early days as well, and they weren't and they weren't and they weren't being seen. There's no evidence that this is something that's come in. And over time, these animals would would lose weight, and they would waste away, as as we see with TB and you know, all all mammal species really, and, and get very severe. But certainly in the early signs, it's these big uh, lymph node swellings, um, and we've subsequently sampled those and cultured uh, mycobacteria, which is the causative agent of TB, from these from these lymph nodes from these lymph node swellings. At the later stages of disease when these swellings get big enough they burst and then you've got lots of pus and infectious material that, that spreads to any others because a lot of their um, behavior in the hierarchy is grooming to, to, to reinforce your position in society so if you're a grooming animal that has got one of these burst lesions you're far more likely to get yourself to get yourself infected uh, the, the interesting thing about the mycobacterium here is that it's a novel strain um, so originally it was thought to be Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the which is the cause of TB in humans. Um, then it was looked at a little bit more closely. I thought, okay, Mycobacterium bovis, the the the, the uh, TB that causes tuberculosis in cattle. Um, and then about four years ago now, it was it was typed at a at University of Stellenbosch. They did genetic analysis of it, and they realised it didn't match any strains of TB that had been seen before. So it got named Mycobacterium suricati, so suricati after after the meerkats. Um, whether that strain is present in any other animals within that system, we don't know. We we, we haven't seen evidence of it, but it, no one's really really tested for it. So, um, in that system, we've got Cape ground squirrels, which presumably are, are vulnerable, uh, slender tail mongoose, yellow mongoose, who all uh, live in the very much the same sort of situations as the meerkats, as cattle on the reserve. 
there's um, various species of antelope, wildebeest around. All of them potentially could be carrying this mycobacterium, but we haven't seen anything else. Nor do we know whether it's present in my, in uh, meerkats any further afield. We, we, all, all, the, all we know at the moment is that it's it's present on that, that this one research station in, in South Africa. Which is pretty interesting in, in, in itself. Yeah, you could do a whole project on looking at how, how it's got there and, and where else it is and sampling other animals around it. So did you did you start in your, in your PhD to actually vaccinate some of the some of the meerkats against TB? Yeah, that was well, that was the plan. Um, we didn't develop a specific vaccine for Mycobacterium suricati that was sort of outside of the scope of of what we were looking at. So we we made an assumption that BCG would would be effective against um, M suricati. Uh, BCG is the standard vaccine that's used globally it's been used more than any other vaccine um, in history and that's used against TB in humans um, but it, it's also been licensed for badgers in the UK we got research data that suggested that it, it was effective in species like ferrets and, and deer no one's ever tested it in meerkats um, but there was, there, was, there was a good chance that it was going to work against M. Suricotic, or at least as well as it does in any other species it's, it's certainly not uh, a perfect vaccine so experimentally, we started um, vaccinating wild individuals. So there were there were two uh, different strategies that we used. Our theory was that the dominant individuals, the dominant male and the dominant and the dominant female in the society, were far more likely to be spreading disease. So Julian, my supervisor, had done his own PhD previously, several a few years before, looking at. Um, social networks in these meerkats and how how they, how they interacted and, and how that was related to the spread of disease and he'd linked the aggressive behaviours that these dominants uh, portray at, as being related to, to spread so if you go around biting other individuals which these which these do to to hold their position in society then you're likely to to infect them that was that was one way we think it's being transmitted. The other, as as I mentioned, is is the grooming, and it's it's these dominant individuals that get groomed far more than than the others because the um, the subordinates want want to be in favour of the of the of the dominance, so they don't get beaten up or thrown out of the group. So they go around and groom groom them. So if you're a dominant and you're infected or infectious, you're likely to infect animals by biting them and by being groomed at a, high, a far higher rate than we think other individuals would be able to pass on disease. So the strategy in some groups was to, was to vaccinate just the dominant pair um, and see if just that very targeted approach could help control disease. Um, the second strategy was thinking, well, the most susceptible animals to, to infection are going to be the subordinates the very, and the very junior animals, so we'll just vaccinate all the pups in those social groups. So we had some social groups where we just vaccinated the dominants, some where we vaccinated all pups that were born over the two years of the study, and some where we didn't touch them with vaccine at all. We just let nature take its course, see what was going on, and get an idea of what's going on in the area in terms of background background infection. And what, and what did you what did you find? Um, well, TB. We, well, we were unfortunate in a way in that we had a, a drought in, in the region midway through the through the study, which which was decimating large areas of, well, large groups. So there were study, social groups outside of the study that were dying off from TB. We had 
a marked increase in TB infection in our control group in the in the in the groups of individuals where there was no vaccination that they were getting a lot more TB um, and yet the two the two sets of treatments where we were vaccinating so three social groups where we vaccinated dominance and three social groups where we vaccinated just pups we had no increase in TB in, the, in those groups despite the fact that everybody else was struggling so we didn't stop infection in those groups but it looks like we made a big difference to transmission um, in that we would have expected given what we saw everywhere else around that there would be far more individuals in those groups going down with, with clinical disease and, and becoming infected and we, we didn't see that at all. Um, the second thing we, f we found in those groups was that the chances of, in, of an individual surviving and living longer were linked to which treatment set they were in. So if you were in a, if you were in a set, and th this may have been chance because it was a fairly small study, um, and it would be nice to look at this in, in greater detail later, um, but actually the evidence was, was quite good given the size of the study, that being in a, in a group where the dominants were vaccinated was beneficial to not just the vaccinated animals, but to everybody in the group. All of the individuals seemed to live for longer if they were a member of that group. And we think that, social, that in certain diseases, not, not for everything, but social group is very important. Um, basically, if you, if you hang around with a lot of sick individuals, you're, you're likely to get sick. If you hang around with healthy individuals, you've got a better chance of staying healthy. So social group comes out of several aspects of the project as actually being as being really important. Uh, and this targeted approach looked like it, it, it was very promising in terms of being able to to reduce the transmission in these groups. So if you, if you went uh, back into the project or, or in, in this in this scope, so what what uh, what questions are, are left unanswered or what would you actually like to to further identify? Bigger. Um, we'd, we'd, we've na now we've got this core of data, it'd be nice to look at it over, over a far larger number of groups. Um, so we looked at, initially we looked at three social groups with a dominant vaccination, three with a pup vaccination, three controls. Um, we might drop the, the pup social if we were to do it again um, in order to just make, make the, meet each of those treatment sets bigger. Um, so that would be interesting just to really confirm that finding. <coughs> but also some, some of the sort of subsidiary things that came out of it were, were of interest as well. So we looked at the time an individual became infected and how long until they became clinically diseased. So we had um, a couple of groups in particular that had bad outbreaks of TB or certainly bad um, episodes where a lot of them would become clinically diseased at any one point in time. And they would all do that within a few weeks of each other. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think that this is a, an infection that takes weeks, months to build, to build up. You'd expect there to be far more of a spread in time between these animals coming down, even if they all got infected on the, on, on the same day. If they all got infected on day zero, with the variation over, over time of, the, of that incubation period, you'd expect some to show disease on maybe day 100, some on 120, some on 140. You'd expect a lot of spread, and yet they seemed very clumped together when they started to show these diseases. So what influences the speed at which an animal progresses from initial infection to the point of disease? Um, and again, is that linked to being to a social group and what's going on. So 
do you get a stressful event that affects all of them in one go and they all take an immune hit? Do you get a second infection that comes in and are they are they knocked back by a second infection then suddenly the this infection that was already inside them has a chance to, to take to take over? So looking at factors like that would be very interesting um, and, and seeing how, how stress is, is affecting the progression of disease. So you're at a you're at a junction as you've finished your PhD. Congratulations for for that. But you've got some some things to uh, still papers to write up and things yeah. like that. And and uh, at the moment you're you're helping covering some lectures in uh, like returning back to you know, your I suppose your bread and butter a bit before. Yeah. So what where do you think you do you think that uh, um, at this juncture at the moment that you would like to continue down that research path, not necessarily with meerkats, but but, uh, but with any sort of wildlife health, or, or even even into into something else, or would you like to, um, or what, what would you like to do? Where, where do you think this is this is going to go? Um, well, solely research isn't my particular interest. I, I like the idea of applied research and putting it into practice. So that's um, going out and looking what questions need to be answered. Let, let, let's try this. Let, let, let let's do that. Um, it's been quite nice coming back to the cattle um, in many many senses. Um, it's something I'm, it's something I'm familiar with and I've been able to, to, to work with and do that. But actually when you go to a, a number of uh, wildlife meetings and you talk to people, one of, one of the big issues is around wildlife livestock interfaces and having people that have livestock experience is, is actually really useful in, in conservation situations because we can talk, talk to farmers um, Try to try to understand why they might be doing a certain practice, which is good for the cattle, bad for the wildlife. Try to suggest different ways they can manage things. So, so that side of things is interesting. Um, I like the idea of carrying on looking at disease in wildlife. I think that was that was quite a good strategy to go down. I'm quite pleased with that. It's worked worked out nicely. Um, but look at that more. And I think diseases in wildlife hasn't been traditionally regarded as as that important from a conservation point of view we either think that a disease can't sustain itself in a wildlife population because that population is not big enough or that we've evolved with diseases so you tend to be resilient so although you might lose individuals a population would be able to survive and would be fine but looking into the future i think more and more we're finding fragmented populations of wildlife so you might have let's say a thousand individuals left in a species maybe they can cope with small disease outbreaks a thousand is a very small number but you know to put it into perspective so maybe those those thousand can cope with disease outbreaks uh maybe they'd lose you know 50 in an outbreak or something like that but they'd they'd bounce back um but what we're finding is the way that humans are dividing up the landscape we're causing these populations to get fragmented so those thousand individuals might now be in 20 populations of 50 each one of those populations of 50 is now very vulnerable to an outbreak of, di- of disease. So due to stochastic forces and this sort of random nature of of, um, of losses, things like bad storms, earthquakes, tsunamis, or disease outbreaks can be far more uh, devastating to these populations now than they would have done in the past. Couple that with the fact that these wild populations are now far closer in contact, far more in contact with livestock populations, with humans. They're being disturbed. They're far more likely to become infected in the first place. So although I don't think disease has 
traditionally been a big problem for conservation, it's becoming one. Um, and we're looking at things like distemper in, in carnivore populations. Rabies is a big player. If you look at things like the Ethiopian wolf and some fox populations, they've had problems. We're seeing um, things like facial facial tumour disease in Tasmanian devils. You're just starting to hear more more and more often about diseases having having implications in conservation settings. So my interest going forward would be would be very much to be actively working in that field. But look at looking where the problems are, and, um, and putting research into practice. So not necessarily in in a specific uh, um, species, I suppose, but more more in like applying those those skills. Who so pretty much anywhere uh, around the world, like a, almost a gun for hire, not not quite a gun, a, a researcher for hire. The gun for hire sounded more glamorous. But I'll t- <laughs> You'll take that. I'll, t- I'll take that. Then. You'll take that. Um, and uh, and you're, you're you're at the moment like or about to like apply for for grants. And I suppose that, that the getting funding for doing things like this is is always a, a difficult thing. And and do you, do you find that that's a, a bit of a pressure at this stage in your in your career as well as a as a as a researcher? Yeah, I think. I mean that that's the limiting step for me at the moment is is, is getting funding to go to go on to the next step. I mean I mean I'm in a very fortunate position at the moment that I've been able to to use one of the other strings to my bow, I guess, really, and to and to be able to find work now and quite quite rewarding work. You know, I might, might end up doing this for a while. Um, but if I if I if I hadn't had the the cattle work to fall back on at the moment, I, I I'd probably be just sitting around writing grant applications all day. Um, so yeah, that is that is very much my my stumbling block at the moment is, is is trying to get that funding and move forward. I think once once you've got it, then you can start to build on that and 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 move forward. So, but it seems to to be in a sort of conversation that you've actually consciously thought about how to improve your skill set, no matter what it is, to looking at where you want to get to in the in the future, and that continue during your during your PhD. So at least you you've recognised that, and then. Sort of fallen, not not fallen back at all, but just gone uh, back to something that you're you're very familiar with and capable of doing while you're while you're again looking for the for the next opportunity. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of labels and people talk about oh you're a vet or you're an epidemiologist. I remember when I finished my epidemiology masters, one of the, what, some, someone that I graduated with, I said oh oh you well done you're you're a veterinary epidemiologist now. Well, I suppose I am in some cases, but. It's just another. It's just another skill that I can add on and, and use in, and apply to different situations. So, yeah, co- conscious conscious decisions to to add to these things. And actually, that was one of the nice things about about the PhD um, being in a setting where I was working with no vets at all out there, um, but with people that actually thought in completely different ways. Um, biologists, conservationists, ecologists, um, who lo- who looked at things very differently. One um, actually it was. Professor Clotenbrock said to me uh, early on, he said, the problem with vets... I thought, oh, here we go. The, the, pro- the problem with vets is you think about individuals and then you work outwards. I don't think that's necessarily a problem, um, but I know what he means. Whereas um, from the from the biologist's point of view, from the ecologist, they're looking at populations and occasionally they might look down to individuals and the behaviour is a bit of a crossover. But that's quite a different, uh, difficult thing to start thinking about. If you look back at veterinary training, we're all about learning about an animal from the inside out and... A, the out is as far as we go. We look at, we go from the from the protein level or the or the or the individual bacteria as far as the shell of the animal, um, and that, and that's it. We don't think about 
it in a whole ecosystem or that the or even the effect that that species is having on another species or is having on the environment um so that was those 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 sorts of skills and those ways of thinking were things that i didn't that i didn't go looking for that i picked up along the way which were interesting as well that's uh, that's good and uh, interesting in itself but we all, we all like to have labels don't we it's, it's probably a way that we can uh, identify or talk to each other or, or look for similarities rather than uh, rather maybe em- more embracing the the differences and and learning how to learn from each other and for the common good i suppose um and what what what, what advice would you give to to, to someone who was, who was interested in research or interesting interested as you as you were um in pursuing that career what 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 do you what advice would you give to someone whether they're a um a vet student or a science student or or um or indeed started a professional career i think you've got to look at I think it's too easy to think about where you want to be and I think that's what I did for a while I was I can see these people that have got these jobs that I want and that's where I want to be jump jump to that it's going to happen but um, actually looking at what interests you and working with those I, f- I very much found that going down a line that interests me seems to lead to a line that interests me, a different line that interests me that leads to a different line um, so many of the people that I talked to had got these different routes, as, as I said, and that, that there isn't necessarily, and it doesn't just apply to what I did. I've seen it with 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 friends that have done that have taken other routes. They've tried to get somewhere and they've actually got, gone down different routes, and they're very happy. Um, but f- follow things that interest you, and actually to try and do research on something that, for the sake of it, that doesn't interest you, I think would be painful. The the, the hours that you put in as a as a researcher, as a PhD student, as a clinician, which, which, whatever way you go to do, if, if if you're not interested, that's going to be that's going to be really hard work and, and and quite painful. So find things find things that you're interested in. Have have start talking to different people. Get an idea of what skills may be needed in the field. Um, so I identified epidemiology as something that I thought there was a shortage of in in wildlife research. Um, and, and pair pair skills with with areas. Okay, um, well, well, many many thanks for for that, Stuart. And I, I suppose I just had one uh, um, final question. I asked a, a, a couple of people this, so so we're all um, aware that uh, mental health mental health or mental health awareness is is really important. I was just wondering um, whether you could share one um, nugget or one thing that you do to make sure that you're okay. Um, I'm improving on it, but I think taking time to reflect on what's gone well in a week, I think, um, and this is something I've only really started to try and do, um, a lot more fairly recently is it's it's really easy to get to the end of the day and think what I didn't do today was this, this, this and this, but I'll have to put those onto tomorrow's list, but I'll try and get those. I'll try and get those knocked off. You get into that into that cycle of of what what didn't work, what I've still got to do, and actually thinking about what has worked today, what what's gone well, even though they're not necessarily things that that you've got to do tomorrow because they went well today. Um, but just remembering those things, having ha- having that moment to think, oh, that that worked, that went really well. If you can build on that a little bit and say, well, that worked because of this, I'll try and do that tomorrow as well or next week or and that, that sort of thing is even better. But just having that moment to not self-congratulate, but 
just have that feeling of yeah, some things did go well today. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I hope this uh, went well for you, for you as, as well. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you, and, and hopefully, good luck with uh, um, your uh, your position here. And I, and I hope you're successful with whatever grant you wish to pursue. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks. Many thanks for your time uh, uh, to today uh, for listening to this podcast and downloading this to it. And thanks, Brian, in the, in the studio for all, all the uh, technical marvelry that, that he does. Don't forget to hit subscribe button um, on whatever device you are uh, using to listen to this RVC podcast. And if you'd leave us a review, that would be absolutely fantastic. We'll place uh, a link to uh, the any information that, uh, that Stuart has spoken about today in the RVC uh, pages. So just type in obviously podcasts on the research pages um it should be top of the tree any any problems then then just get get in touch if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please uh email me dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet me at don barfield until next time bye bye